Hello and welcome to episode 41 of Magic and the Other Guy. Kevin and I are sitting outside my home on the sunny banks of Lake Wiley in Charlotte, North Carolina. Kevin, how are you today? I'm fine, I'm fine. Yourself? I'm very well, thank you. Good, it yeah. was raining earlier on. Yes, and you will hear the pitter, pitter, pitter of the uh, drain dripping. That's right. Yeah. If we lay out, you can hear it. There it is. There it is. All natural sound effects. And we have steam steaming off the shingles on my boat dock down there because all of a sudden it's getting very hot again. They do soak up the heat, those black shingles. They really do. Yeah. I like to see it. It's, it's very atmospheric. Anyway, we digress. Uh, I never know what we're going to be talking about, Kevin, on our podcasts. You do. What is our subject for episode 41? Well, I think this is a topic that kind of dovetails a little bit with our one about field trips recently and also stays in line with summer because people tend to attend these more when they're on vacation. Museums. Oh. So I am brought up the topic of museums today. Yes, museums. All right. Well, get us started then on a museum-esque story. <laughs> well, the uh, first... <laughs> The first ones I remember were, would, would go back to field trips in, in elementary school, and, and uh, I think one of the earliest ones I remember going to, and I can't remember the, the na actual name of it, but it was because we were in Knoxville, Tennessee, we would go over to Oak Ridge, and it was kind of like the Energy and Science Museum okay. or something along those lines. Yeah. And I, it's been so long, I don't remember. I remember you, you kind of like went into this little auditorium thing and got a presentation, and I remember these light-up discs on the wall that represented something. And, of course, there was probably tons of other stuff. Sure. Uh, I still remember the gift shop. I guess you remember that as a kid. But the big thing was to always get the pencil with the uh, half of it was a pencil, and the last half of it was a, a clear cylinder with little tiny colorful rocks in it. Oh, cool. I haven't seen it. I, I, I want one right now. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'll be looking on eBay for one. Yeah, yeah. So I always remember that part. But, yeah. uh, but Lady God, I imagine, you know, being from Europe, there are some, you know, of course, some of the most amazing museums yes. over there. Do you, are you a fan of museums? Are I am. I like, I yeah. like, I can get lost in a museum and, and really, really go to, it's like a documentary that you're live at, you know, it's, you're seeing it for real, you know? Yes. Well, I'm kind of fascinated by not all history, that's, that would be wrong to say that. I'm not particularly fascinated by ancient Rome, for example. But um, 20th century history, particularly the, the Great War and the Second World War, as you know, holds an, an appeal to me. There is an incredible museum in London, the Imperial War Museum, which uh, is, is filled with relics and artifacts and information from any of the great conflicts, but particularly the, the two world wars are well covered in that, so that, um, but though that museum is uh, busy every single day, every single day. And they have a, they've reproduced a section of World War One trench in there. Um, but also they have wonderful sound archives, which they've been collecting over the last couple of decades, trying to get first-hand memories and accounts before it becomes too late for these folks. Yeah, you know? yeah. And I think in recent years, they, many museums have become more aware of that. We need first-hand accounts of what we're trying to talk about. Let's get them on, on file before they've gone, before, unfortunately, it's too late. And uh, they've done a very good job of that. And also the BBC tend to follow up with that, the British Broadcasting Corporation, or the Beeb, as they're known as over in England, or Auntie, for reasons which I've never quite understood. understood. Um, and... Um, Voices from the War, I think it's, it's called. But anyway, all sorts of different podcasts 
that have been done in tandem and partnership with the Imperial War Museum. So oh, very good. There's a lot of that, yes. Uh, but yeah, I, I love museums. There's a great one over in, I think it's just outside of Barcelona, actually, which is um, dedicated to Dali, Salvador Dali. Yeah. And it's impossible to mistake it when you see it because it's a beautiful building that is painted bright pink, which kind of makes the building stand out anyway. But the building is also covered with Dali's wonderful Spanish loaves of bread he used to make. So when you see it, you kind of, whoa, oh. I know exactly what's going to be inside there. And if you're a Dali fan in any way, most definitely go and see that. And it is absolutely full of his wonderful, wonderful things, yeah. Did you ever, uh, did you ever go to the Louvre? I have been to the Louvre, absolutely, yes. Yes, several times, actually. And the Louvre is fantastic. All, all great museums are fantastic, aren't they? But it is so vast. I mean, the Louvre always strikes me as so vast that after half a day, I'm just exhausted. And uh -huh. you realise that you've seen but a fraction of what's in there. Particularly, I mean, the star attraction is going to be the Mona Lisa. And the Mona Lisa is behind glass in a glass box, effectively. But you can't get anywhere near it unless you're the first through the door. I have I have heard it's one of those things. That it's like it's 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 a big tourist no no. Don't even bother trying to see it. It's just a a exercise in futility. Yeah. And of course, you know the, the thing everybody says it's so small <laughs> that it's well, much much smaller than people think it, it is. Yeah, it is. And you're so far back in the in the throngs of people that you're not going to get to see. It. Just get a good book, and you're going to see it much better. It's a tragedy in many ways how well protected it is, although I understand the reasons for their desire to protect it. But I'm pleased that so many museums don't go down that avenue of protecting the works to that degree. I get it, but I don't get it. Well, actually, that's, I, have a, I have a personal story about that. Um, the Smithsonian, you know, I lived in D.C. Right. for about 14 months, and obviously the Smithsonian's are there, and in the U.S., I mean, that's our, you know, grand dame of, of museums yeah. or museum system and uh, so you know, I would go occasionally mostly when it's kind of funny it's like when you live there you don't go as much sure. but you know, you will when people visit yeah. you know and I had, yeah. I had actually been uh, on a DC trip with my parents in high school but I don't think we actually went into the art art museum you know there's so many different things to see there yeah. we just didn't do it so this was when I was uh, probably about mid-twenties living up there and I had a friend come in, and so we'd actually both been in graphic design school together, so we obviously had art classes, you know, art appreciation classes okay. of different things and such like that. So it was natural kind of for us to go, go in there. Well, we started off in the, in the area where it was most, mostly, you know, Monet's, Manet, those type of things. Yeah. And I'm looking at these, and you're, you can walk right up to them. I mean, right up to them. And, and there's a security guard to the right, and I said to him, I said, you know, naively, I said, are these reproductions? And he kind of laughed and said, no, they're the real things. And I said, but you can walk right up to them. Yeah. They're not protected. And he kind of laughed. He said, well, what do you think I'm here for? And I said, yeah, but. And he, and he kind of laughed, and he, he kind of knew what I meant. Yeah. And he kind of he took some time with us and actually explained. He said, we really don't have to worry. It's not, it's not somebody coming in that's, that's crazy and it's going to slash the painting or just somebody's going to do damage to it on purpose. Yeah. What we have to watch out for is, uh, say, a, say a, an art teacher brings his group of students in here, and he's showing them a painting, and with, uh, within seconds, he whips out a pen, and he wants to show an a, a important detail, and he's touched the pen tip to the painting. 
He said, that's where we have to really be diligent of. That's where our danger is. And I said, oh, okay. So that explained kind of how they're able to do it the way they do it. And it was amazing to get to stand, I mean, inches away from a masterpiece that you've seen only in books. It is absolutely mesmerizing to me. It's, It's exactly right. Because when you see a great work of art, whatever it is, yeah, Monet, for example, you look at Monet's works, and you stand so close that you can see the brush marks and the thickness of the layers of paint. Exactly. There's this weird thing. I mean, I'm always attracted to detail, as you know. It's been a part of my job for many years. I'm attracted to small details of things, whether it's just observation or actually physical details of things. But when you get really close to a work of art and you can see where the artist has actually laid on those layers of paint, there's something indescribable about it right yeah. it's just absolutely fascinating that's where the mastery master master yeah. mastery is yes so. you try it yes that's exactly right you try and pinpoint what makes a great work of art a great work of art again we've mentioned Dali earlier on I, I i'm a fan of Dali's works as well but it's indescribable how these things are achieved it's just uh, something magical happens when an artist does his best work it's a bit like we're getting off topic already. If I say it's about, it's the same with composing music. How did Mozart do what Mozart did? You know, he just there's something magical happens mm-hmm. that you can never reproduce it. And I'm no expert of music, but when I listen to Mozart's seemingly so effortless way of making that work work, is 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 fantastic. And it's the same with painting. There's a museum in 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 Oxford in England, very close to where Banaton are based. And um, there's a museum there called the Ashmolean Museum. And a few years ago, and the name of the artist completely escapes me, two very expensive paintings were stolen from the Ashmolean. And if memory serves, it was, I want to say it was either New Year's Eve or Christmas Eve one year. So this theft had been timed to be at a time when perhaps there wasn't enough attention shown to security or... These guys broke in, stole a couple of very, very expensive paintings. I don't think they were ever recovered. And I remember reading a report, and I hope I've got this accurate now, where um, journalists had asked the museum about the insurance on the paintings. and And the museum's response was, they're not insured. Because how do you insure... A priceless work. What can you can't replace it with anything else that's like it? Yeah, it's there's gone. There's no comps out yeah, there. The, so. the, the, yeah, the, the, absolutely. You lose an expensive painting by a particular artist, and it's gone forever. We can't. What do we do with that money? Yeah. You know, we can't. We can't buy another one. Yeah, it's not a like for like thing. It doesn't work that way. Yeah, yeah. Every once in a while, you hear about that about a an art heist. You know, it's. it's where the word heist is kind of used a little more than a theft any, anymore, you know? Yeah. So, and a lot of times I think uh, it's as brazen as breaking in and don't they just take a box cutter and they slice right at the uh, edges of the, the frame yeah. and just pull it and roll and, and out the door they are with it. Yes. I've, I've heard of that happening. Uh, but also, you made me your little story earlier on when you were standing within e- inches of valuable paintings. I've seen the same in museums where the frames are seemingly just screwed to the wall with screws and roll plugs. I mean, there's nothing... I mean, there might be something behind the painting I'm not aware of. But just like your description, you look at these things and think, but but what is really protecting them from theft? And somebody obviously knows how to hang them properly and take great, Mm. great care with them, which I'm sure is a skill set within itself. 
it's amazing. It'd probably be amazing to be a curator at a fine museum. Yes. And you mentioned the Smithsonian earlier on, and I love walking around the Air and Space Museum in, in, in Washington and just seeing, again, picking up on detail, when you look at some of those early 1960s spacecraft, the Gemini craft, for example, and then some of the Soviet items they've got on display, how do these things ever, ever fly? Yeah. You know, they seem so basic. Well, they were very basic. I mean, I get all of that, but you look at it and think, wow, you know, I mean, I've been around highly sophisticated engineering for 10 years of my life working directly on it in Formula One and also observing it for many more years. But it's just remarkable to me how unsophisticated those early ships looked, how the wiring looms just seem to be held together with strands of, of, of tape. For lightness, I'm sure, you yep. know, but these things flew into space. Yeah. I'm pleased I was not in any of those craft. Well, as you know, I suffer from a little claustrophobia, so the idea of being bolted into those um, craft for a start is a, non, is a non-starter for me. Not your idea of a holiday. Those guys were so unbelievably brave to do what they did. Well, I'm looking forward to going back up there at some point because they've opened up that whole new uh, part of the Smithsonian Air and Space where it's what in Virginia and it's the hangar or the hangers or okay. whatever where they have is much vast more space where they have like a full size space shuttle. I think the whole Enola Gay was was rebuilt into the full plane because actually when I was last at the Air and Space Museum that's on the Mall there in Washington, yeah, there was a section that had pieces of the Enola Gay. Okay, like they had the tail. Um, I think they had the nose cone and uh, a few other pieces of it. Yeah. And then now they can have it fully, fully built. And I can't think, you know, what other big, they may have a SR-71 Blackbird in there and some other things. But when I do get up there, again, I'm definitely wanting to, to go to the newer, larger air and space part, as well as the original. Fascinated by all of that. And I'm so pleased that these museums exist. And talking about museums in a, in a wider context, one of the biggest failings of museums, let's say 25 years ago, I think was the, certainly in London, was the fees that were being charged to go into the museums. And then in an absolute stroke of genius, the museums, I don't know if, if this came from the government or however it came around, all the museums just said, let's, they're free, just come in, they're just free. And they found they were making times more money from people coming in and spending money in the gift shop yep. and you, you know the concession stands or whatever it would be you know they, they found that they were making infinitely more yeah as far as i know this, yeah as far as i know the smithsonian's have always been free yeah i um, think so because i think they it's seen as this is this belongs to america yeah there's this a donation the, box when yeah. you go in oh yeah yeah, yeah. and yeah. there's plenty of gift shops there's plenty of spaces to spend your money if you'd like yes but um i think it's you know a kind of a, a gift to the people because well they, in a way, they're saying it's it's your history. It's your, you know, as an American citizen, these are yours. And of course, you know, not, we're, not only American citizens go through them. Quite a, quite a number of well, there uh, must be a foreign visitors attraction. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. But they sure. are amazingly done, and it's you know, I'm sure I'm just sure what they bring in revenue-wise as far as donations. But I'm sure it's and they have the, the societies and the magazine and the channel now on TV and stuff yeah. like that. So I'm sure there's many ways of making things work very well. Yeah. Enough yeah. they've expanded, you know, so. Well, I think last time I visited Philadelphia, uh, I, I visited two places that were, were fascinating me. One was the Philadelphia Museum of Art, 
which is laid out kind of like a Roman building with wings to the left and right and stairs leading up to a little plaza in the middle of it and then galleries leading off to the, to the um, uh, left and right and I just thought the building itself was beautiful great works of art in there anyway and you can walk, walk around all that stuff I'm going to say for hours and hours but again after about three, three hours I'm so exhausted I don't know what it is about walking around museums it's just an exhausting operation to me but um, beautiful building and uh, I enjoyed the building as much as anything else about that art museum. But also in Philadelphia is the old penitentiary building, which, although it needs a lot of, it could really do with some restoration work on it now. The building itself is the old prison, original old penitentiary is, is, is open. I think there, there might be a small charge to go inside, not very much. But I, I, I just find that fascinating. Again, just looking around the buildings and how it, well it was constructed and the huge, great, solid granite walls surrounding it, plus all the stories of the tunnels that inmates built. And, you know, it, it, that's another fascinating thing. Oh, absolutely. But, uh, but parts of that, the old penitentiary, I wish I could remember the name of it, but, of course, look online, just look at Philadelphia Penitentiary Building. It's going to come straight up, I'm sure, on the Internet. Um, it was, a, it was a very wet and rainy day when I was there, and you could see on some of the cell buildings on the inside where water was running down the walls, so it was very atmospheric. Again, I came away thinking, please protect this building because it's, a, it's great, of great interest, historical interest, and also just a fascinating thing to see. Uh, but on that day when it was raining, it was kind of interesting to see the rain on the inside of the walls. I liked all of that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it is, you know, it's maybe in the smaller ones that just one person is passionate about something and they've created a museum for it. And it may be in the most small town and you, you never know if you yeah. weren't there and happened to see a sign or the lady at the diner told you it's there. And uh, next thing you know, you're in this museum and you're like, there's there's the uh, Super Bowls of the, soup, of the uh, Smithsonian level. And yeah. then there's these smaller upstarts and... But I think they're all fascinating. If somebody's got a passion to create a museum for something, it's, it's, it shows their dedication and, Truly. and it, it can be very interesting. Down in Tekoa, as you know, I have an interest in uh, Camp Tekoa, uh, where the um, Easy Company 101st Airborne Division trained before leaving for Europe in their pre-D-Day training. Uh, but there is a little museum at the just next to the train station in the tiny town of Tekoa in Georgia, which is dedicated to the 101st Airborne uh, because of the close proximity of the camp. And in there, they have rebuilt part of a stable block that was over in England where the 101st stayed in the very last couple of days when they're in isolation to stop the story of the invasion getting out, any risk of it getting out to the wider world. They were effectively isolated in farms and around uh, airfields and parts of that stable block have been brought over the Atlantic from there and rebuilt into the museum. Oh, fantastic. Which is kind of a cool yeah. thing to say. I love all that. Yeah. And, and I'm pleased that's happened because so many of those Second World War buildings, um, they're in a state, they're falling down. They would have just been leveled and destroyed and taken away as an old farm building without anybody really giving any consideration to the history that was attached to it. I think the idea that it was brought over the Atlantic and rebuilt is a, is a great thing. And talking about Camp Tekoa, where the airborne trained, 
the, the good folks down in Camp Decoa that are, are rebuilding sections of that camp. To give a little backstory, which I think this is a little fascinating story to the camp was sold off as soon as the war ended and it was no longer needed. The camp, and it was, it covered thousands of acres of ground. The camp was all sold off. And the original barrack buildings were dismantled and they were sold incredibly cheaply to local farming communities with the idea that they could be rebuilt to house chickens or whatever. And so all the original buildings were, were lost. But when this group got together to try and rebuild Camp Deco and rebuild the original barrack buildings, story got out what they were doing and several of the farmers said we've still got those panels there's still nothing ever happened to them you know for 40 years they've just stood it stood in my farm not doing anything so they were re they were they were gathered together whether donated or or sold back for very little money and a lot of the barrack builders they've rebuilt there feature all the original wood that was there that was used yeah isn't that a cool thing authenticity <laughs> yeah. only happens once yeah, absolutely so you can only get the yeah. real things yeah that's that's a very cool thing and uh, i like again i'm fascinated by all of that details of things and to, the reproduction to get things as close as you possibly can to originalities is is fascinating well one thing that makes a difference too and you mentioned it with you said that uh, the one museum had the uh, world war one trench yeah if it's i mean it's one thing to be in a museum and you're, you're seeing art or whatever, or you're seeing a lot of photographs from an era or something like that. Yeah. It's one thing to see a photograph, but if you can immerse yourself into a fairly accurate representation of yes. what it was like, it just really changes your mindset because you can say, oh, it was it was this high, or they were looking over, it, they had to lean up to do this or yeah. whatever. And you'll see that too in, in some of the uh, ones that, whereas the, the, the traditional Smithsonian's are mostly, you know, displays and stuff like that. You know, right. you're, you're going to see the Gemini spacecraft. You're going to see the Spirit of St. Louis. You're going to see Evil Knievel's motorcycle. You're going to see, you know, Archie Bunker's chair. Those kind of things, which are wonderful to, to get to see. But the more the new museums will start creating things that are, or you take you in, like uh, another amazing uh, one in D.C., and I'm not sure if it's part, I don't think it's part of the Smithsonian system, but the Holocaust Museum, yeah. which is, of course, a very powerful uh, museum that I've actually been through twice. But they one of the stages you, when you're going through, you go into a, a train boxcar, okay. like they were all loaded into. Yeah. And, but to be in it and smell the old wood and, and, and all that and be, you know, to have all the senses. Well, you've just said authenticity. There's no substitute for seeing the authenticity of something. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and of course, you know, the Auschwitz camp itself, they've done such a phenomenal job of keeping it intact. Yeah. I've never visited it. It's a, it's a place I'm, I, I, I feel drawn to because of the history of it, though it must be an absolutely terrifying prospect to go into that complex of buildings. But I'm so thrilled for history that it has not been demolished. Yeah. I think it's I think it's a it's vital importance that it's kept exactly as it is. So future generations can can go, can see and can take it in. Take all that horror in. Exactly what happened there. I think it's vital that it's kept there. Yeah. Well, another uh, speaking of that that same museum, the Holocaust Museum that's in DC. Yeah. The one way that they, I've always impre impressed how they did it, they did um, how they built it. There's areas where you watch video because there's, you know, a lot of, of course, video from World War II yeah. and, and, and a lot of that is, is disturbing. And what they did is they, they put some of the videos down inside an area with a, a wall that's, uh, let's say it was three, three and a half feet maybe. Okay. So 
adults could look over and they, it, the video was looking at them like at a 45 degree angle, perfect perfect viewing of it okay. on, on screens, but smaller children couldn't see over it. Yeah. And I'm like, that's brilliant yeah. how they thought to, you know. Yeah. It, it, so the, the, the children could have their innocence protect, protected. Exactly. Yeah. And another thing, I know we're kind of on one museum at the moment, but another thing they did at the, the Holocaust Museum is they have a whole um, interactive where you start at one end and you go through it and, and you take your children through it. I think it's called Daniel's Story. Okay. And it's the story of a little boy and how he's caught up in, and it starts off just like in his kitchen, but it's interactive. It's like, you know, find the cookies and, you know, where they've, they've been baking cookies today and stuff. But it just shows how, you know, it's, then he's taken away from his home and, where he ends up in the ghetto and, and, yeah. and takes him through in a child's way of showing, you know, what would, would have happened, you know. It's vital that this stuff is protected, isn't it? Yeah. It, it, it really is, yeah. I'm trying to think, you know, one thing I wasn't aware of until I visited the Imperial War Museum for the first time, uh, and, and again, you know, I've written about the Great War. I am interested in that because it was, it was an event which still has ramifications to today, uh, to this very day. Um, with, with, here's an example. Biden's recent, uh, President Biden's recent proclamation that all, all American forces will be withdrawn from Afghanistan. Without going into the politics of it, you can trace back from Biden saying we're going to recall all the troops from Afghanistan. In a series of possibly 10 steps, you could trace that story back to the Great War. It had such an effect on the, on the whole world from 1914 to 1918, but the effects, the knock-on effects of that conflict are felt to this very day that America is withdrawing troops from Afghanistan. It can all be, all be traced back to that event. You know, obviously, you know, you look in the wider, more wider, well-known context, you could say we know that the First World War conflict begat the Second World War. We could see that. And the Second World War conflict became the Cold War. You could see that. And you could see that the Cold War led on to Korea and it led on to Vietnam. And then the, the, the Soviet troops tried to invade Afghanistan. Like every step, tick, 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 all the way along, you can trace it back to what happened in the First World War. So it was such a monumental event. I think it's vital to study that, and if, if I mean, I understand a fraction of it, but if you study that period, it, it kind of explains what else has happened around the world over the last hundred plus years. But going back to the museum, Kevin, I was going to say, I wasn't aware of how, again, this is, goes back to details of construction, that the German forces in the First World War, their trenches were so much more sophisticated than the Allied trenches were. The German engineers had figured out relatively early in trench construction that you can't have a straight run of trench. You can't do that because if an artillery shell hits the trench, there's nothing to stop the artillery, artillery fragments going left and right and, and, and writing off any number of troops that happen to be there. Yeah. You've got to design the trench to be in a zigzag formation so that the walls minimize of the trench casualties. will minimize casualties. Yeah, and the Germans were over that very quickly. And in, in contrast, and by comparison, the, the British trenches, the French trenches, were very much more basic. And they didn't figure that out until much later in the conflict, I think, that we've got to change our construction. Mm -hmm. you know? And the Germans 
uh, were aware of the potential for flooding, were one of the great tragedies of the, well, there's many tragedies of the First World War, but one of the great tragedies was because of the end, seemingly the endless rain and the endless sludge and mud, that the trenches were all, seemingly always underwater. But the Germans had figured out that to put duckboards into the bottom and raise those duckboards up so that the troops were standing on dry, a dry surface. It might just wood, yeah. but they were away from the water. And so many of the Allied troops were suffering from trench foot because they were permanently sloshing around in, in water and mud. And that killed a, a, a lot of people yeah. because they'd get trench foot. That would turn into gangrene. Then you'd have your feet amputated. That would lead to infection. On it, on it goes. So all of that stuff... Is fascinating, but if it wasn't for museums preserving that information, yeah. it would be lost. Yeah, and you can watch. You, know, you can watch it on YouTube. You can watch it on a TV documentary. But to go to a museum and see a recreation of, it, or even a diorama yeah. that's done really well, you get yeah. the perspective. You get the three D perspective that you can't get on a video. So get out to your local museums and such. And who knows what's in anybody's given town? You know, that's that's uh, listing, and it's, uh, they may have never uh, looked at and found or something like that. There's thousands upon thousands of great little yeah. little treats out there and and some of them that uh you know I'm, I'm looking forward to going now grant granted this is a well-known area and we talked about it in our uh, uh amusement parks i think episode about pigeon forge up in tennessee right i love it i love to, i'm fascinated with titanic of course millions of people are i'm not sure. not lo- alone in that right, but right. there's supposed to be an excellent titanic museum up there with many relics and interactive things, you yeah. know, like I know, I just know, like one room you go into the room and it's the temperature, the air temperature, of the uh, the night, which was freezing, right? Uh, I'm sure, pretty I'm close sure what to it was, yeah. yeah. And they also have the water temperature too, so that's gonna. Yeah, I mean, it gives you yeah. an immediate sensory thing of how it felt to maybe have touched that water. Nevertheless, jump in. Yeah. In fact, I think they have one where they have um, a part of it where. It's the ang- the final angle, or one of the final angles before it was going to go completely under. Oh, okay. And you try to hang on you sh- the railings, like if you were trying to hold on to the railings, oh, wow. you know, at that yeah. angle. I- I'm really looking forward to going. I just haven't made it over there yet. Someday I want to get over there and spend a, a good number of hours, probably. I don't think the wife is into that one, so I think that's going to be a drop-off. You text us when you're done. Uh, plan. <laughs> yeah. But I'm like, fine. Yeah. I'll, I'll be done when I'm done. And uh I have to say, I, I am 58 now. I, I never thought that the Titanic would ever be found in my lifetime. Well, I remember when the Titanic was discovered. I was oh, thinking, God, no I remember it vividly. Way. I remember yeah. vividly. Ballard, Ballard found it in 85. Yes, I remember it. It was such a big deal. And the, the issue of, uh, we, we subscribed to National Geographic, Dad did. And that, that issue, you yeah. know, when it came out, it was just, seeing those photographs was just unbelievable. To, to this day, it still seems remarkable to me that that ship has been found. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was thinking of your the museum you were describing there, which would have artifacts, teacups and plates and silverware or whatever it would be that's been brought to the surface, you know. And uh, yeah, I thought all of that would have been lost. That's a remarkable thing about museums. Yeah, to be able, we, we took, going back full circle to where we started this discussion, it's being able to have that sort of, I say tactile sense of it. You don't necessarily have to touch it. I'm sure, I'm sure the museum creators would, would prefer that didn't happen, unless it's the little piece of moon rock down Smithsonian? At, Kennedy, at Kennedy, Kennedy Space Center, I think, where they've got a little sample of moon rock down there. But I'm thinking, you know, you, you don't have to touch these things, but to get up close 
and just see these things. Like to see a teacup, for example, that was on the Titanic, and it just, it's so evocative, isn't yeah. it? You see that, and instantly your mind is recalling all these things you remember from a kid about reading about the Titanic, you know? Yeah, I think that's, uh, museums, museums are cool, kids. That's right. right. That's right. Get out there. Get out there and go to a museum. Well, it's like I said, I love just discovering one. One of them was actually, um, it, it's no coincidence where it was, but it was, we were at the North Shore of Hawaii, you know, the big surfing mecca. And we were in, it was in a nondiscreet little uh, plaza that uh, had little shops and stuff. And lo and behold, there's a little surfing museum that somebody had created. And there's no yeah. charge to come in, and you walked around. And he had different boards from different eras, and showed the history and, and someone all that. just wants to share their passion. Yeah, and all that. he had at the end was a donation box if you wanted to, yeah. you know, give. And of course, I did. I was happy to, and I really, I was really thrilled to, to find it and chatted with the owner for a few minutes and went on my way. But I still remember it to this day, and you know, it's been like 22 years ago. Yeah, I'm fascinated with all of that. You may recall that fairly recently, I, I acquired two field telephones that were not working from the Second World War. Uh, we should probably do an episode. I mean, I, I just think that there's two classic things that have just come into my life fairly recently because I'm fascinated by items from the past. But to see them, to see these, I mean, it's just two field telephones. There are just two, two field telephones that aren't working from the Second World War. Who cares? But I am fascinated by looking at them, looking at the connections, how they work. And the thing that instantly struck me, Kevin, when these telephones arrived and I started to pull them apart because they weren't working, boy, they are heavy. These, th I mean, they are heavy. They're, they're probably like five or six pounds each. Not a lot of weight. But when, when you imagine that a, a case containing 10 or 12 of those telephones needed to be physically carried around the Arden Forest, freezing conditions in the snow <laughs> all of a sudden there's a whole new story comes to light wow i never realized just how cumbersome these things oh were. yeah you know all of that but until you actually see these items whatever it would be in this case it's two field phones it could be anything or the teacup from the titanic when you actually see them a whole new sense of appreciation comes to the fore in my opinion yeah you know, wonderful things or you can watch like say you could be a world war ii buff and, and watch dozens of documentaries and see dozens of your favorite films on it and then you know you actually put on one of the helmets and realize oh this is what one of those weighs yeah you know, this is how it feels on the head yeah and to just think about everything that that you know gi went through you yeah, know might have worn it by complete coincidence and and again gentle listener i must i must stress i never know what we're going to be talking about when we do these podcasts kevin does i don't Last night, I was watching, I was flicking through YouTube, always fascinating, there's, lots, there's so, much thing, so many things on YouTube, and I stumbled across a, a few guys that were with metal detectors out in forest land somewhere around Berlin in Germany. I can't, I, they didn't say where it was, uh, but they described it as being forest land somewhere close to Berlin. And sure enough, they were out with metal detectors and they were finding uh, odd little uniform buttons and the occasional little coin that was from the Second World War. And then w one guy is going around with his metal detector and he says, oh, I've got quite a quite a heavy read here, or have you describe it in metal detecting Sign language? Signal, maybe? Strong signal. And um, he, he, he dug down underneath, only about three or four inches, not even four inches under the soil. And you could see a little bit of rusted, what he says, I think this is a barrel. This is a barrel of something, you know, gun barrel. And went a little bit further, and, little, and then almost like magic, it was like magic to me, a fully complete German submachine gun, he pulled it out of the moss. And I thought, talk about 
unearthing history. Yeah. It was absolutely phenomenal. It looked in, yes, it was rusted, but every component seemed to be there from the buttstock to the folding buttstock to um, the breech and the magazine, the trigger guard and the trigger, everything was there. It'd obviously just been dropped on the ground and over the last 70 plus years had just slowly, slightly buried itself, but only slightly. But he pulled the whole thing out and there was the good gracious, talk about living history. There yeah. it is. Dormant, all these generations. Wow. And it was just one, it was one of those moments like, good lord, look at this. Incredible. Yeah. Well, I think uh, I think we've covered a good bit. I think there's many, many more museum yeah. subjects we could keep, continue on, but I think we're going to have to wrap up for this episode. But well, thanks for that subject. That was, that was, yeah, sparks many stories, these subject headings you come up with. And uh, yeah, museums are, I, museums are, I was kind of joking earlier, museums are cool kids, but museums are cool. They are. Yeah. I mean, there's so many great things. Get out and get out and enjoy some. Yeah, and, absolutely. And first, now they're probably, you know, really, really looking to get patrons back again. So yeah. it'd be a great time to go check out what's around your area or something to travel to. We will, I tell you, we must do an episode on these two field telephones talking about that. They're the only thing. I, I, I can't discover a German machine gun in my garden down here in Charlotte, but we have got those two two uh, field phones we could try and get working. Yeah, there was not a high German presence in North Carolina during <laughs> during uh, the 40s. But not, not as far as we're aware. Not as far as we're aware of. Not as far as we're A few aware. subs off the coast, yes, but... Yeah. Well, uh, Hemingway was convinced there were. I remember Hemingway um, set out with um, with his pilot, his fishing boat pilot. He did. He was yeah. convinced that they, he would be able to encounter German submarines and see them off from the coast of Florida. Yeah, I don't. Which, think which I'm sure those subs would have made uh, quick fodder of him. But uh, okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, uh, anyway, good good for him for being so convinced that he could do something about it. Yeah. Anyway, dear old Hemingway. All right, well, we must go. Uh, we'll be back for another episode of Matching and the Other Guy, won't we? We will. Yeah, all right. Take care. Until then. All right, bye.